Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and pivoting to digital for the whole TRU community. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tkumlupste Swetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmukulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today, I'm thinking about return to campus because uh, I'm pretty much always thinking about return to campus, <laughs> but I'm particularly thinking about accommodations and what those might look like. I've got a lot to say, so let's get into it. I think about accommodations a lot, both in terms of what students need to thrive and also in terms of what faculty need to thrive and what boundaries faculty need to set to be able to do their jobs effectively and still survive. (laughs) We all know when we've been in a classroom where we're faced with making a lot of accommodations for individual students, that it can impact workload, right? And accessibility services is obviously there to help with this work in really important ways. I don't want to take anything away from that. But setting multiple exams and preparing for multiple different scenarios can be taxing. It's one of the reasons why universal design for learning has been appealing for lots of people. UDL is a way of kind of planning in advance for the type of accommodations students might need and making it so that the largest number of people in the classroom can have a positive experience. We've talked about UDL and other kinds of accommodations on the show before, the episode where I chatted with Carolyn Tier and Carol Sparks, and I'll link that in the show notes in case you haven't listened to it. But I'm thinking about accommodations a lot right now because I think we're going to see something really different in the fall when it comes to accommodations, and I don't know if we're 100% ready for what's coming. We know from... Anecdote, (laughs) anecdata, but also from emerging research that we're looking at something of a post pandemic mental health crisis. The pandemic has obviously impacted things like rates of anxiety and depression. And sometimes it's easy to think that returning to quote unquote normal is going to erase all of that. But first of all, folks are traumatized and trauma has long lasting impacts. But also, returning to campus and to other kinds of activities um, isn't going to be calming and soothing for lots of folks. It's going to exacerbate experiences of anxiety, particularly for folks who have different vulnerabilities or health anxieties or are managing those within their family. There's all kinds of reasons why we're going to see mental health be a significant issue for all kinds of members of our community, not just students. So that's one thing. I'm also thinking about how we're going to manage the precarious health of ourselves, our colleagues, our students. You know, things are looking pretty optimistic for fall. I have to admit, I'm not actually feeling that optimistic for fall. I feel like my brain has really settled into kind of a defensive pessimism about 
the pandemic. Like if I just assume it will go on forever, then anything else will be better than that. If we're to believe the town hall this week and the bits and pieces of the go forward documentation that we've seen, we're going to be back masked, maybe unmasked, maybe a lot of things depend on vaccination rates. I think it would be foolish to assume that there are not going to be members of our community who have all kinds of health reasons for not wanting to put themselves on campus. And I think a lot about our duty to accommodate. I don't think it's reasonable to just say to those folks, oh, well, you opt out of community for the year. In fact, I'm pretty sure legally we can't do that. And morally, ethically, we can't do that. I don't know what the plan is for accommodating those folks. And I don't want you to think that I do have any kind of secret information. I promise if I knew anything for real, you'd be the first people I'd tell. Well, Twitter. I'd, I'd tell Twitter first, but I'd tell you guys second. I swear. We'd do a special episode. Brenna knows things. <laughs> Breaking news for the first time. Brenna knows a thing. Um, I guess the reason why I'm foregrounding this thinking right now is because I feel... <laughs> my spidey sense is tingling. I think a lot of labor is going to fall to instructors in the fall to come up with solutions to these situations. And I think for better or for worse, you know, probably for worse, because inconsistent experiences aren't great for students, but I think a lot is going to depend on the humanity of individual instructors. We're going to talk about this um, in the post-pandemic pedagogies lunchtime discussion series I have running. Link in the show notes if you want to register. And I think it's going to be a recurring theme through all of our discussions because much like the initial pivot, much like all the on-the-fly learning design work that's happened since, I think a lot of work is going to fall to instructors and in many ways, your workload is going to be predicated on your kindness. <laughs> like The more effort you're willing to put in, the more work you're going to end up doing. And I'm not sure that's a great long-term strategy. I think as a community, we need to have a conversation about how we hold our people close, regardless of what they're going through, regardless of what brings them to campus or keeps them away from it, regardless of what we feel is, quote unquote, the experience they ought to be having. I got to tell you guys, I am sick of people telling me about what the post-secondary experience is supposed to be. I lived at home for the first year of university. I didn't go to any, many of my graduations, maybe my undergrad. I... I was a really good high school student, and then I turned around and dropped out of the first university program I chose after four days and enrolled as a special student at another institution, and no one ever saw my high school transcripts again. Like, I don't know, man. We have this idea that there has to be one experience or that there's only one experience that's valid, and I just think of all the people who get erased by that kind of narrative. And many of the people getting erased are the very people who are going to need to be accommodated. But here's the thing, right? Accommodation comes second. 
what if we don't accommodate? What if we start now planning for the idea that there's going to be a variety of different needs in our classrooms in the fall semester and that students and colleagues are going to be coming to campus or choosing not to come to campus for all kinds of reasons? What if we think now at the design stage about what a classroom looks like where everyone has the ability to learn and thrive and grow? It feels utopian, I guess, to imagine that we can accommodate everyone's needs, but also, what are we doing if we're not trying? We spent a lot of time this year developing these trauma-informed, responsive, care-centered pedagogies, whatever you call it. In many ways, we spent the year trying to re-inject humanity into our teaching and into institutions that are, frankly, not actually all that designed for people, shockingly enough. I don't want to lose that. I also don't want to move to such a rigid system of accommodating students that people fall through the cracks. You know, you know, I worked in the community college system for nine years before coming to TRU, and so I'm very familiar with students from a range of different backgrounds. And something I noticed again and again was that students lacked the proper documentation even if they knew how to accommodate for their own learning, if they didn't have the piece of paper, they couldn't always convince instructors to listen to them and help them achieve what they need. And gosh, I hope we stop that. <laughs> I guess I don't really know where I'm going here, except that I hope you're thinking about accommodation or perhaps designing to not need accommodation. As I say, it's going to be the topic of this week's Pandemic Pedagogies conversation, but I think it's also going to be the topic of our lives, certainly through the fall semester. We've been through a massive global trauma. I keep saying it to myself because I can feel myself trying to forget that that's what's happened. I can feel myself expecting a level of normalcy and functioning. I can feel it in the kinds of self-talk I engage in when I do feel anxious. You probably know I'm in my 30s. I'm an elder millennial. My vaccine appointment isn't till the 27th. I've got a ways to wait still. And I think about our students eligible now, sure, but I'm eligible now. My appointment's on the 27th. <laughs> I think about how we're going to get the second shots into arms. And I think about why we imagine that that second shot or the first one is going to erase everything we've been through in the last year. And I remind myself that we're all in the same storm, but we haven't all been in the same boat. And we didn't all have the same supplies to hand when the storm started. I don't want students and faculty and staff to have to be resilient anymore. I want them to thrive. And I want us to provide environments where we anticipate that people will thrive. We've got the opportunity for some really radical change, and I hope we all believe that that work is necessary. And I also hope we can find the energy to do it, because y'all, I'm tired too. Consider this a bug in your ear. What's fall going to look like? How are you going to respond to that? And what does it mean to who you are as a teacher, a colleague, a friend, 
when you make those decisions. Someone who is an unimpeachably good colleague, teacher, and friend is Christina Cedarloff. I've invited Christina on the show today because she is someone who really made lemonade out of the year's lemons. And I don't mean that in a way that minimizes what anyone has been through, but, you know, uh, I'm going to let Christina tell you herself, but the way she has approached moving her classes online and the outcomes that she sees in her students, I find it inspiring. I hope you will too. Here's our chat. So today I am here with Christina Cedarloff. Um, Christina, I always ask people to introduce themselves and say what they do on campus. And so who are you and how might people know you on campus? Well, hello. Yes, I'm Christina Cedarloff and I teach in the education and skills training program. Um, many affectionately know us as Esther and many people know about the Esther market and mm-hmm. so, yeah, so you'll find me um, uh, normally on campus in and around the Esther market. We have three classrooms that the Esther program um, has as its home base in Old Main on the second floor. I miss Esther's market. I miss our lovely book club meetings and our lovely lunches. It was always such a warm and social space to be in. Yeah, we, you know, I I think warmth is a good way to describe Esther and uh, and the programming that we offer. So for those who are listening, we do have some listeners from outside TRU who might not be familiar with um, what the Esther program looks like, or, you know, maybe folks at TRU. I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit what classes typically were like for you before the pivot, because I want to make sure everybody has the context for the quite incredible transition you and your students had to make back in March. In Esther, and so Esther stands for Education and Skills Training Program, it is a program for students that are wanting to enter the labor market and prepare themselves um, for entry-level positions. Um, Our students have one reason or not why going into other programming, um, at least at first, might be challenging. Uh, The programming... Uh, prior to the pandemic was 100% face-to-face and um, typically students and faculty um, had a 20-hour week of of face-to-face instruction. Wow, so a lot of hands-on time, right? Like a lot. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you on the podcast, Christina, is because I'm really interested in reflecting with faculty about the experiences of the last year. And I thought of you first among faculty who had to make a a really big transition, maybe bigger than um, a standard, you know, geography or history or English class in transitioning students to fully online. And simultaneously, I'm also really interested in not in a Pollyanna-ish way, ignoring the hardships of the last year, but sort of celebrating some of the successes. And I know that you have had some real successes with your Esther students this year. So I wondered if you could tell me 
first a little bit about what the transition was and how that felt for you. I know it was a big undertaking. And then maybe what the outcomes have been for students or or what you've liked about the experience, if if I can if I can weight the deck in that direction. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, really, there's so many analogies. Um, the rug was pulled right underneath us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, um, and actually, in the, in the early stages, um, actually, it was like walking through quicksand because we were initially told that practicums were going to continue. Um, mm. And so um, we had students ready to go out on their practicum and then businesses were closing mm. <laughs> and and you know the actually maybe the rug isn't the good example the, the land underneath us was was changing and <laughs> moving and I remember thinking at the time well, you know just wait a day and and <laughs> The ground's going to be different, uh, you know, um, and and it was, and so so then it was. It actually took two weeks to determine. I think it was about two weeks to determine that no, in fact, we were going to not go out to, to practicums, and we were going to have to shift to online. And then within that, uh, we had students that didn't have computers. We had mm-hmm. students that didn't have reliable Wi-Fi. Um, at, you know, but what we did have was a really strong sense of community um, because the students and their instructors had been together um, for eight months. And, uh, you know, one thing that, as I mentioned, is really important in Esther is building community and building, getting to know each other and, and feeling a part of the transition that the students go through. And so that really did uh, pull us together. And for just an example of our final class, my final class, I had a big event where everybody was going to say um, something that they appreciated about each other. And in order to pull off that class, two students had two students on their cell phones. I had two cell phones going and then somebody lost connection. So I ran to get my daughter's phone. (laughs) So just to pull us all together, um, it was, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot that came together, but we did and we finished Mm -hmm. strong. And um, in that way, a typical emotional uh, end to, um, to the year, but we did, we did pull it off. So that was the end of the last academic year. And then it was a matter of, well, how are we going to do this in the coming year? And with all of the things that was being discussed, it it seemed to be a needing to make some decisions. Now, I will say that the the Esther Retail Program and the Esther Kitchen Program had some face-to-face on campus. They're... Mm -hmm their labs for career exploration, which is the program that I taught um, this year, the hands-on portions were their practicums. Right. And, and so, and typically those practicums are um, at businesses. And if you think of where we were in the pandemic um, last fall, um, Mm -hmm. that just didn't seem feasible. So, 
Um, so I spent last summer thinking, how would I, how would I do that virtually? Um, what, what that led to was a concept of transferable skills and doing practicums at home. And there was a lot of uh, learning with technology. There was a lot oh, of... Yeah. yeah, you did a tremendous amount of learning with technology over the course of the summer, just so that you could be in a position to prepare your students to learn and adapt to the technology. And I think that's a particular barrier slash opportunity that you had that other instructors didn't have to worry about quite so much. You know, you had this real responsibility to move them into the virtual space. Um and to help them do it effectively, which was a big challenge at first. Yeah, it was a it was a big challenge. Um, I think that you know some of the things that I learned from this as well is to reach out both myself, but also have my students reach out to other supports in that mm. um, because mm. I think we've we've been in a place where. So when you teach an Esther, it's like you're the answer to everything. And there's a default to that the instructor will take care of that. And I think that with this, I, I know certainly for myself, I needed to say to the student and typically their support, which was typically their parent, you know what? reach out to IT services and they're going mm -hmm. to be able to um, help you with the Office 365 download. Or you're having problems with Shaw. Yeah, you're going to need to talk to Shaw mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and troubleshoot that. You know, what was really markedly different this year from any other year that I taught in Esther, it was the importance of the supports that the students uh, could access mm. because in years past students would go to TRU in the same way that they would go to high school they would go to school they would be in classes Monday to Friday 20 hours a week and then they would go home and and all of the programming was done uh, on campus. This year, it really did rely that those students reached out for help from people in their community, as in their, their bubble, which was typically mm -hmm. a parent or uh, perhaps an, an agency person that they had in their um, support, you know, backup and, mm -hmm. and reach out to those. And I think that that's the, as I think towards how to move forward with this, um, that is what I'm grappling with, is what I found that because that had to happen, my students were more successful this year than they've been in the past. Mm -hmm. And their supports have a closer view on where they are and what their next steps are, because they were a part of that process. You know, this is something I've heard you say in other venues that your students progressed or you saw more improvement in your students this year compared to other years. And it's such a marked difference from the larger narrative that we hear, not just within TRU, but like across education, right? Which is this obsession with learning loss, learning loss, learning loss during the pandemic. Um, and, I, and I often think, you know, we could reframe that idea of learning loss and instead think about the kinds of things that students gained during this period, right? Like um, 
the sorts of skills around resiliency to to maintain a program of study, regardless of what you know their grades ultimately looked like, or the kinds of technical skills that many students developed, the kinds of troubleshooting skills. Um, not that you know, yay, pandemic. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> but we do tend to obsess over this idea of learning loss. And so, when I hear you say that your students were more successful this year, I think that's a really that's a really fascinating perspective to have on the year because it's certainly not a common one. My whole premise was let this not be a lost year. Um, yeah. And the pandemic is a reality. It's, it's not something uh, that we can ignore. And so how can we not only make the best of it, but how can we, yeah, how can we make the most of it perhaps? Mm-hmm. And and what can we learn from it? You know, time will tell, but I know personally I've changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the world has changed. I think education has changed. And, and I think we have the, whenever there's that fundamental change, we have the option to take the best things that came out of this and move mm-hmm. them forward. Um, and I hope we do that. And, and as I look to this next academic year, that's what I'm trying, trying to do. The other thing that I think I learned was that, uh, and I think we're learning, is that um, both work and education can happen outside of an on-campus experience, mm-hmm. um, that we can trust people to be working yeah. and to be learning when they're not physically sitting in the classroom and that maybe they will learn in some cases better um, Mm -hmm. when they're not physically sitting in a classroom. And I think that'll be a challenge because I think a lot of people that's been their experience that you have to go to work, that you have to go to school. We can't monitor whether you're working or going to school. Um, Well, yeah. And that, that monitoring component is so much of both you know, how we conceive of education, unfortunately, in lots of ways, and how we conceive of of work. Like, I think it's been hard for a lot of people in management and leadership positions to make sense of a world where people are doing the work on their own because they have some sort of intrinsic motivation to do it. And I think lots of faculty and teachers of all levels have struggled with that with students too. It's like, oh, you really are just going to do it. Okay. Or you know, sometimes you're not. And let's have that conversation too, but let's not assume that everyone, I guess, yeah, let's start from a position of trust, right? That'd be, that would be a kind of cool remaking of education. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's another thing that I know that, that has, that certainly you've talked about and it's been part of the conversation is, um, and I'm going to dare to go there, um, (laughs) is, um, you know, the amount, the, what you can see uh, when you're teaching online yeah. through yeah. Moodle, which in, in Moodle was new for me. I had, I had a taught a co- I had taught Women's 2015 through Moodle, mm-hmm. uh, but it was already prepared for me. And, and that did help. My students had at least some Moodle experience, um, uh, but that was a huge learning curve. Um, mm-hmm. 
Mm. But what I, but then of course I started to see, well, I, you know, I could see what students had done and what they had watched and what they, you know, and where they had, had been. And I didn't take, I, I, I was always, um, I think it was through the discussions that, um, from sessions that we had, I always made it known to the students that I need you to know that I can see this. Um, yeah. And, or, or if I, or I would intentionally say, I'm not going to share this in our synchro- synchronous session because then you'll be able to see everybody's <laughs> work. Um, <laughs> but I need you to know that, you know, what I can see. Um, and then if I, if I didn't see somebody had opened something or worked something um, and I needed to know why my approach was well I see you haven't been in there is there something going on or can I help you mm-hmm. um and from that standpoint um it it allowed me to to see that you know maybe somebody was struggling or maybe somebody um or they didn't have time or they didn't know <laughs> they didn't yeah. know that they were supposed to be there so I I, I, th- I think that that was um another element to this year. You know, it's interesting because oftentimes by the time I get looped into this conversation with faculty, often we're at the stage of an academic integrity situation, right? And we're checking IP addresses or something. And and faculty will say to me, well, I don't, how am I supposed to have this conversation? Like, this is going to be really awkward. <laughs> and it's a good reason. I mean, just avoiding that awkward conversation is a good reason have the conversation early in the term where you say like, hey, this is what I have access to and this is when I'm likely to check it. And if I'm checking up on you, it's because I can see these things and you should know that, right? Then the conversation is not awkward because the student already knows exactly what it is you have access to as the instructor. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's I, I feel like it's a more respectful and adult way to approach what is ultimately like a fairly paternalistic surveillance system that we have access to, right? It should be an open conversation because, yeah, we're in partnership with with the learning. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the, I'm reacting to the paternalistic part of it. I, I, and I know that when it's used incorrectly or poorly as a surveillance or a monitoring it can have that but mm-hmm. you know I valued it from a standpoint that I can see um, if somebody's working on something and if they're mm. not that they might be struggling and then just to ask that question you know why isn't yeah. this working for you as opposed and a much to- easier to conversation to have when that discussion has been open from the beginning right when you've been True. really explicit with students True, true. Because otherwise it's kind of like, if you never talk about it with them and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I see you didn't work on that essay. It's kind of like, well, where did you? And on, you know, on some level, I wish students just had a baseline understanding of the, this, this issue, you know, like what we have access to and what we don't, but we don't do a great job of having that conversation on a, on a global campus wide level. Right. So it does unfortunately get left to individual instructors to decide how, how open to be about it. But, you know, I really, I think I just, I look at the relationship you have with your students and you do treat them extremely respectfully and openly and as though they are partners in this education that they're pursuing. And I think that's really like wonderful. I, I, I think it would be great if it was sort of 
the approach of the institution as a whole, right, to treat our learners that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would I would say that um, it, to me, it's an education piece that mm-hmm. um, in, in the same way that uh, I guess I now know that there's lots I've always known that there's lots of cameras on campus and I think there's some new ones. Um, yeah, we just got a list, didn't we, in our emails a couple of weeks ago. Like, oh, wow, okay. That's right. So, you know, so so I know when I go on campus, you know. To, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I what I know not to do, but but I, I know that I'm being filmed anyway. Um, yeah. So, so I do, I do think that, you know, that, sh- that part should be, it sh- should absolutely be open. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I see that then, you know, if not the instructor being um, open about that, 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 that should just be common knowledge that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that this is, this is available. And, but then I guess what happens for the instructor part is, this is how I will use it. I think that that's maybe where it lies with the instructor is, yeah, is this is the, that's the decision point that um, that that needs to happen. My big hurdle now is how to not go back. <laughs> well, this to... was going to be where I wanted to take the conversation before we leave it today, which is, you know, you've had this great experience of, I'm not going to say you had a great experience of a pandemic, but you had this great experience where because of everything you had to do, you've found a way to increase student success and to deepen their learning. And now we're looking at a return to campus that is still pretty up in the air, but there's certainly a lot of rhetoric about back to normal, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, your students would clearly not be served by a return to what's called the status quo. Um, so without, you know, you can say as much or as little here as you like. Certainly folks who listen know that I uh, often say too much. But um, what what do you want to do for fall? What do you hope fall looks like? Ignoring sort of institutional mandates and plans and things, what are you hoping to do with all of this as you as you move your students forward into the fall? Well, first of all, I hope that there continues to be, my aim is to continue with the digital learning that uh, my students have, have done this year. Um, I do, you know, I will have a new group of students that most of them will have come from high school and high school has been face-to-face. I think what we learned was that students can, uh, you know, learn online and students can flourish online. Um, We need to give them the time to learn those skills. So that's first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, Also making sure that they have the technology. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That has to happen as well. You know that I was able to have a great co-teaching experience with Melissa Svensson mm-hmm. from Williams Lake. Uh, I'd like to continue with that. I'd like to continue with having Melissa come to my class and teach together research with my students. Uh, the great work that uh, has happened this year around uh, WordPress and portfolios and just all the technical parts of that. What I'd also like 
to do is find a way to continue to have students learn outside of being on campus. Mm. Um, so in their homes, having them reach out to the supports that they have, um, because I think those are skills that they need to have moving forward. I think in the past, what we've done is we've, um, in the, in our thoughts of serving them, we've done too much for them. Mm. Um, and I think that um, they and their supports need to know that um, there's things that they have to do on their end. Mm -hmm. And because they will leave um, the Esther program and then they need to have a solid footing to stand on um, and to move forward. So that, that is going to be the hurdle because I do think that um, there's been this, this feeling that you go to school and, and that your the school takes care of everything and mm. then you go home and then you live your life. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, so, not a great integration of learning in that model, hey? No, no, and so mm-hmm. so that that means that people have to buy into that as well. That mm-hmm. that they have a part to play, and that um, that things aren't um, aren't necessarily done for them. That they have mm-hmm. to do some of that themselves. And and you know, it was a, just a natural consequence because with learning online, I, I couldn't do the things for them you know it was sort of like I need you to to reach out to this to IT services for help I need you to have somebody um, help you think about you know what at home practicum you're going to do like what is it within your home that you that we can work out a plan for you to implement and who's going to be your supervisor And so, and, you know, and, and so all, and so, you know, my role was certainly guiding that and helping with that, but, you know, the student was much more in the driver's seat. So, so that is what, um, uh, that, that'll be the hurdle. The one thing I learned about Moodle, which I absolutely love is that you don't lose things and students don't lose yeah, things. Yeah. And you can work without paper. So, so it's like You're not oh, going back. I know you're not going back when it comes to <laughs> story oh, documents. Oh, it's on it's yeah. on Moodle. Yay. Well that you know, and there therein lies the hurdle too is making sure that all students have um a laptop mm-hmm. um, and and work at, so that they can be doing it. But yes, no, I'm I'm quite happy to move away from um, from paper. And you know what? We thought we saved thousands. That's amazing in photocopying this year. Wow. Yeah. Well, Christina, I have to tell you, I think I've said this to you before, but you know, I've really found your whole approach to this year inspiring. You jumped in with both feet and. I know that you had your own sort of anxieties and trepidations, but um, you recognized, you know, the task ahead of you that needed to be done and you've created something really wonderful for your students from it. And I think, well, I just, as I say, I've just found your work this semester, this whole year, since last March, really inspiring from the first time you came into office hours and you looked so worried <laughs> to the confidence with which you approach teaching and learning online now. I think it's 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 a tremendous example 
of what we can do in the difficult circumstance. Well, you know, uh, my thanks lies with you and with Matthew and with um, Carolyn Ives and with Melissa. Um, You've been my village and uh, some of some people will know that uh, we did a TPC session Mm -hmm. and we have a Celt talk Um, and uh, you know, you have been my, my village, um, in this, and uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it without, without all of you, honestly. Oh, thanks, Christina. And thank you for the time you spent chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So that is it for episode 28 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. Let's think together towards what fall is going to look like. How will you take what you've learned this year and adapt it in a way that will support, encourage, and connect with the maximum number of learners? If you're not in a classroom position, how will you take what you've learned this year and continue to support students, your colleagues, through the year that is going to come? It's tempting to feel like fall is going to be a return to quote-unquote normal. But it's only tempting if normal worked for you before. It didn't work for everyone. And it's only tempting if you can really put out of your head the trauma, the exhaustion, and the anxiety that we've all moved through in the last year. I hope we don't. I hope we continue to see each other as human beings. Flawed, failing, beautiful, wanting human beings. I'll try to be all those things over the next week, if you try to. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.